Welcome to Excellent Questions. I'm your host, Yahya Kel. Today, my guest is Diana Cadet, a clarity coach and a marketing expert based in Toronto. Diana and I talked about the power of narrative, emotional clarity, and much more. So let's begin. Let's start with where you grew up. Yeah, so kind of all over the place. My mom had me very young. So because of that, I moved around a lot. So I was born in Montreal, Quebec, and then very shortly after moved to Ontario. But at some point in my first couple of years, I lived in New York, which is why I speak English. So the rest of my family is completely francophone through and through. I'm the only random Anglophone in my family, like no accent, thinks in English, everything English. Everyone else in my family is French first, like completely by accident, because my mom said she left me at a relative's in New York for, I don't know if it was a year or a few months, but I came back and I only spoke English. And so I actually had to relearn French through my mom and like through school and stuff like that. So Quebec, New York for a bit, and then Ottawa. I consider Ottawa kind of where I uh, came of age. Like my all my childhood memories are there. Had a really great time. But then once I started high school, I moved back to Montreal, Quebec, and then finished high school, did college, and then finally moved to here, Toronto, 10 years ago this August. So, mm. yeah. 10 years. Yeah. Do you find that it's hard to find people to speak French with in Toronto? Or is it easy? Um, I don't look for that. So, mm. because of being the weird English black sheep of my family, I even though non-French speakers say and and think that I'm perfectly fluent, I have a lot of complexes around it because to me, I'm not perfect because look at my family and, you know, like, you know, your family is probably the one that'll like riff on you and kind of tease you a bit. And when I was younger, I took that to heart. So I made a conscious decision to move here to get away from, from oh. yeah, because <laughs> I was like, I don't want, I, I don't want to have to speak it. Like I, I'll use it sometimes. Like now it's like more of a benefit than anything, but in Montreal, there's like this really weird culture around French and being black and being from a country that uh, is French speaking. Yeah, I, I didn't. I didn't really fare well in Montreal. People would give me side eye, um, talk shit about me, and assume I didn't understand. Like it was like a weird cultural thing where they were like, "Why are you black but you speak English? You must think you're better than us." Like just weird. Like I was getting that from like the Haitian community, and then from the Quebec community, it's just why are you speaking English to me at all? That's rude. <laughs> so I made a conscious decision like in high school that as soon as I could, I would move out. So yeah, I don't really look for people to speak French here. <laughs> mm. Yeah, that makes total sense. Yeah. yeah. I've, I've heard similar stories about French people in France yeah. being very, very particular about how you speak French. Yep. And like, if you make a mistake or something, then it's like a big deal. Yep. Because yeah, the, the French in Quebec is, it's like the deep South of French. Like that's how like heavy and slangy and, and just mm. quote unquote unsophisticated it is compared to 
French in France. So definitely that's a whole other thing. Like I could go, like people always say like, oh, go to France. Like you speak French. I'm like, yeah, they're gonna (laughs) laugh me out. I mean, not that I even speak with a Quebec accent, but I'm sure I say a couple of words that are specific to Quebec and they would not like that probably. Mm, It's so funny, you know, with like North American English, it's like, it's almost seen as like accentless yeah. compared to the original, like not so original, but the UK English, modern UK English. Yeah. And then it's the reverse for French. Yeah. That's yeah. funny. Wow. So you went to college in Montreal, yep. eventually moved to Toronto. Yep. And on your website, it says you had 21 jobs since you started working. Yeah. So I've been in the workforce going on 15 years. I had 21 jobs across 11 companies across three different industries. Wow. Yeah. That's something. Yeah. <laughs> A lot of work trauma, that's for sure. Yeah. But yeah, it, it kind of what that final piece of the puzzle was what made me realize like coaching was it for me because yeah, I've been working for as long as I can remember and to be honest, it's mostly not been a good experience Mm. just due to the like and it's a lot of things right it's the fact that I'm black it's the fact that I'm a woman it's the fact that in some industries or in some workplaces I was uh, I was the youngest or one of the youngest it's it's capitalism just what it demands of us on a daily basis and just none of that worked for me no matter how much I tried to make it work for me Mm. And, and yeah, and after feeling kind of chewed up and spit back out, I kind of wanted to take that power back for myself, but also like help people through that because we're born into this sort of world. So we, a lot of people internalize failures as being their fault when the reality is we're just not, humans are not built to live like this and it's not actually normal or okay for your employer to expect to be able to squeeze every last drop of energy from you and you have nothing left for yourself like that's not okay and that's not normal but Mm -hmm. we don't word it that way so people don't take it that way and so they think oh why am I so lazy why am I unhappy at every job am I just an unhappy person like all these thoughts that people have like I had all of them right until I realized like oh this isn't me it's just society which is like a really freeing thought right yeah it's a mismatch between what's good for me and what's good for my employer yeah and then what's good for how society is currently set up yeah there's just so many layers of like just bad messaging yep that we get you know things like if you're not working hard at something you're lazy yeah the other one being like you know failure is your fault like by default uh and another one being like i should be giving my all to my i should be basically living to work giving my all to my company and these are just assumptions we internalize yeah absolutely something that a former mentor of mine said that's always stuck with me was like we don't have to suffer to deserve the life that we want and i realized like oh my God, that's so true. Because for a lot of people, including myself, you start to think if it's not hard, then it's not worth it. Or if it's not hard, like you said, you're not trying hard enough. And 
it's almost become this currency for us in the way the world is set up right now, where we give out our energy, our bodies, our minds, our souls, so that we can get an inkling of a happy life, whether that be financial security or a roof over our heads or food to eat, even like basic necessities. But we tell ourselves like, you have to like essentially kill yourself. You don't deserve that. Yeah. And it wasn't until she said that, that I was like, oh my God, like that's, that's insane. And, and the irony is I moved to Toronto because Montreal wasn't enough like that. Mm. So back when I first moved here and people would ask me like, why did you move here? I'd be like, oh, you know, Montreal is just, it's too chill. It doesn't really jive well with me. Like there people like work for the weekend, like as long as they have enough money to do, to hang out with their friends. Like I was saying this, like I pitied them or like I was judging them for saying, like now I'm saying it out loud. I'm like, what? <laughs> I was like, yeah, can you believe like people just care about making enough money to, <laughs> to, to enjoy life and like a career there isn't climbing a corporate ladder. It's just having a job you're okay with for a while, for a decade. Like that's so sad to me. I wanted to move here and you go, go, go all the time. <laughs> like, that, like, yeah, that's, I, this is the first time I'm like verbalizing that. I'm like, oh my God, baby Diana. Like, <laughs> yeah. that's funny. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, it's funny when somebody who has that perspective then runs into like, you know, modern you or, or me. Yeah. And, and you're just, you're looking at them like, what should I say to that? <laughs> oh, sweet summer child. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yep, absolutely. That's hilarious. So, you know, taking you back to that that time in your life, you know, you worked a lot in marketing. And I'm curious what uh, drew you to that. I know that you were also into fashion at the time. What? How did marketing speak to you? Yeah. So, again, because of my experiences in the workplace, everywhere I ended up, aside from my jobs in fashion, I kind of just ended up there because just everywhere I went, I was pigeonholed. So my first jobs were in retail. Like my very, very first ever job was a seasonal employee at Toys R Us. And and then that just begat more retail, more customer service jobs. And, and then that's how I ended up in telemarketing. And then that just begat more telemarketing. And, and so when I moved to Toronto, I was like, I need to cut that out because those industries do tend to suck you in. And then when future employers kind of look at your resume, like they pigeonhole you. So I was trying to break out of that. And this is where like the storytelling comes in. Like, I feel like my whole experience in the workplace was me kind of trying to thread together past experiences with current experiences so that I can sell myself for future experiences. So by the time I moved here and I had finished, you know, studying fashion and, and decided I wanted to work in fashion, I was just kind of having to sell the story of like, look, I may not have experience in fashion, but like, look at all the customer service experience I have. Like you need that. And I have the schooling to back it up. So I know what I'm talking about. It was like a lot of my career was just like essentially begging people to give me a chance and look beyond, you know, the fact that I'm young, the fact that I'm black, the fact that I'm inexperienced, like all of these things, like literally. And so that's how I ended up in fashion and realized it wasn't for me just in terms of my values. It's, it's very backwards in that sense. You know, people give tech a lot of crap for, you know, not being diverse and, and all the stuff that it does, all the different ways that it pushes out marginalized folks. Fashion is even worse. 
Yeah. Except they tell you that you should be so lucky. So I realized I needed to get out of fashion. And by that point, I was like in my early 20s and realized the only skill I had that I had always been confident in and never had imposter syndrome about was my storytelling and my writing. And so in my head, I guess it just made sense to go from fashion to writing about fashion. And then maybe that would get me into journalism or marketing or something more writing focused. And that's exactly what happened, right? So I, I just, I applied to a bunch of writing jobs. I had an interview with an editor for a high-end fashion magazine. And I told her, you know, I don't have any professional experience, but I can write my ass off. Like, if you don't believe me, just give me a test. And if I don't blow you away, I'm sorry to have wasted your time. And she was like, all right, fine. Like, write this 500 word blog post. And then that's how I got that job. And then now that I had writing under my belt and like had been published and had been blogging for a while, I started applying to more, you know, corporate jobs where I could write, but be more financially comfortable. And that's how I accidentally ended up in tech because the tech company I ended up working at the job role was for an editorial assistant, which coming from a fashion background, has a very different connotation. And so I was like, ooh, this is fancy. Like, yes, editorial assistant. Um, and it, it, it just meant you write the company blog that no one will read. But, you know, mm. I didn't know that because I'm coming from fashion where editorial assistant is like, you get to shadow the editor-in-chief as they make, you know, these huge decisions about content and things like that. And yeah, I got there eventually, but it's just really funny that I ended up in an industry I didn't even know existed. You know, like I was like, mm. what is that? Tech what? Like, I feel like you're missing a word there. <laughs> and, <laughs> and yeah, and then I ended up in tech. And then from there, I realized like, okay, if I'm going to stick to like a corporate career path, this is going to be it. It's going to be marketing. It's like the closest fit I've found thus far to all of my skills. It has writing, it has storytelling, it has customer service in that like you're connecting with people. I'm a very empathy-led marketer um, more than data or revenue-based. So that really appealed to me, telling other people's stories, all that stuff. Like I, I, I was able to kind of make it fit into what I enjoy doing anyways until until that didn't work anymore because because mm. tech and marketing is always changing. And now that I'm outside of tech, like marketing is completely different than it was when I first started. And so it is very much less about, you know, being a voice of the people and more about, you know, KPIs and making sure to hit certain revenues and being able to read data and turn that into a story that the board likes and things like that. Like none of that interested me. So I decided I had to get out. Yeah. I've, I've seen my fair share of marketing analytics roles just because of what, where the world that I'm in. Yeah. But uh, it's funny, you know, tech gets a lot of attention because of its cultural problems. Yeah. And I think mostly, you know, it's, it's just it's so huge that it gets the most attention. But, but, you know, the people I know who work in other industries, it's just like this stuff is, it's on another level. Yeah. It's interesting that because it's huge, because fashion is huge too. I think why tech gets flack is because when you think tech, you think innovative. And mm -hmm. so you almost feel like, how dare you be in a quote unquote innovative industry and you're so backwards culturally. Whereas mm. fashion 
everything about fashion is based on the past. It's based on who you know, it's based on legacy, it's based on all that stuff. So the answer to a lot of the cultural problems are, well, it's just always been this way. And we had to live through it. So, so should you. And so it's just like, it's just framed a different way. Whereas tech is always about like, let's disrupt this, let's disrupt that. And people are like, okay, well, disrupt racism then. What are you doing? Like, (laughs) (laughs) you know, and, and they're like, oh, maybe not that yet. And we're like, okay, well then (laughs) what is all this for? (laughs) Like, yeah, it's this lofty vision. And then it just falls short because, you know, it's a human system. Yeah. It's almost like, you know, when you go on, uh, on Gordon Ramsay's show, you expect to get yelled at. Yeah. But if you go on Mary Kondo's show and she starts yelling at you. Yeah. It's like, what the hell? <laughs> she would be canceled. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. 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 That's interesting. Uh, at some point along the way, you started to get more into public speaking and then you took this, this boot camp, which I found interesting. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I think a couple of years into tech, I had grown really, really confident in my writing skills. Now that I had kind of done it all, I, I've been in publishing, I've been in marketing, I, I was a personal style blogger at one point, like, I felt like I had done everything I could do in terms of the written word. And I was looking for different outlets to tell my story and tell other people's stories. And mm. so the first tech job I had, they happened to have like an in-house influencer of sorts where this was just someone who had a lot of industry experience. And so anything to do with brand awareness or even just going to conferences and speaking to customers and things like that, he was always tapped for. And I just kind of saw that as an opportunity. I really enjoyed working with him. And I realized that a lot of what he did was, you know, just connect with people and share their stories. And I wanted to do that too. And I was like, you know what? We're both on the opposite end of the spectrum. Like we're we're opposite genders and we're like, he was in his 40s. I was in my 20s. I was like, I can be him, but like the millennial voice. And especially at that time, marketing was really focused on like, oh shit, these millennials are coming. Like, how are we going to talk to them? And so I was like, ah, me, like you don't even have to worry about that. And so I just kind of sold myself as like, you need to also make me your in-house influencer. They were like, okay, sure. And so I started traveling with him to conferences to like do talks and connect with people and things like that. Um, And then that just kind of opened up the world where I was like, oh, like this isn't as hard as I thought it would be. I, I started getting like articles syndicated in other trade publications and getting on radio shows and things like that. So I was like, I, I think this is a thing that I want to do and came up on the boot camp and the founder who's now a really close friend and mentor of mine, uh, Mohammed. And I really loved what he was doing with women in color. At that time, I was really interested in kind of pushing the envelope for tech and doing a lot of kind of DNI focused work with tech. So it just felt like a great fit. And so I wanted to see what women in tech was about. And they had a speaker bootcamp. And I was like, I have some experience, but I could probably use more. I joined and it actually turned into a really pivotal experience for me. Just It just kind of completely built up my self-esteem and my just the way I viewed myself in the professional world. Something that they kind of really spent a lot of time nurturing in us was the idea that thought leaders like don't get stuck on the word thought leader. If you are getting paid to do a job, then you're a subject matter expert in that job, if nothing else. And if you're a subject matter expert, 
then you can talk about it on any stage. And Mm. breaking it down that way really made it feel less daunting because the whole point of that boot camp was for women and people of color who never saw themselves reflected on conference stages. And not only that, but had convinced themselves that they would never see themselves reflected because they either didn't have the right look or the right background or just didn't know what to talk about. And by the end of that conference, like we all, we had a mini conference and all gave a talk and all of these people were just so knowledgeable in their given subject. And it was like, oh yeah, like this is so obvious. Like we can all do this. We just, Mm. yes, we're fighting against, you know, to, to a certain extent, like systemic racism and things like that. But, but a lot of it was like an internal thing that we needed to kind of switch on. And yeah, and so that was, that was a really great learning experience and kind of propelled me to do more talks and get my, my voice out there more and my name out there more and just kind of building my personal brand and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Doing speaking gigs can be really transformative for your public presence. You know, people are much more likely to engage with you after you do a, a live speaking gig. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it it was just, yeah, it was just great fun. You know, like I said, like I'm in love with storytelling in any format. And so just to find another medium that I enjoyed and that I was good at was just a breath of fresh air for me. I, I just really enjoyed it, especially because as with most writers, I love to write. I never write. <laughs> so, <laughs> but I can talk, I can talk up a storm. So it was just easier to kind of like go that route for a while. That's the next level. You've reached level two. Right? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I think it's just, I don't think I've completed level two. That's the thing. Um, mm. Like in terms of writing, I've, I've gotten published. I've had my own stuff. I've been in other people's stuff. I, I, I feel like you know, if someone asks me for writing samples, I have like buckets of links to send them for talks. I I want to, you know, maybe do a TEDx talk one day or something like that, like speak on larger stages. So I think I'm still in level two for now. Mm. How do you organize one of those things? It seems like you can, they're like independent, right? Yeah, I actually have no idea. I've never looked into it. And I realize now it's because I'm doing that thing of limiting beliefs of like, oh, I'm, I would never qualify for that. So I just never looked into it. But I probably should. Because yeah, that's, it's probably not true. It's probably like any other thing that you think is like, based on just randomly being recognized out of the blue, it's usually you nominating yourself or other people nominating you. So it's probably a case like that of just answering a call for speakers. Yeah, maybe. Uh, I mean, if universities with student like students can set it up. Yeah. then uh, it can't be that hard. Yeah. Probably the hardest part is just getting those giant letters set up on the stage. Yeah. Yes. I guess they have to send you the letters. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if it's like a balloon or what, or it's like just concrete blocks. Well, they look solid, but you're right. I wonder if they're hollow, hollowed out, or if they're solid. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> it's a breaking story right? waiting to happen. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, narrative is super powerful. I tell people in data that narrative is the most persistent unit of knowledge. So it travels way faster and way longer than any other kind of thing, whether it's like a, even a quote or a, a lesson or a book. A story will transcend anything like that. Yes, absolutely. And, and that's what I really love about storytelling is it gave me a way to connect with people 
that I otherwise wouldn't or couldn't connect with. A bit of feedback I got early on in my career was that I have the ability to make complex things simple. I remember being surprised by that because in my mind, that's not what I was doing at all. In my mind, I was just looking at something and being like, how can I tell a story around this thing that the majority of people will understand? Because a lot of my writing career was centered around writing about things that I didn't understand. So just being able to write it for myself, for it to be interesting and digestible for me, really made me think about how can I make this interesting and digestible for other people. So when I was writing for the you know, high-end fashion magazine, I was poorer than I've ever been in my life. So uh, like none of the stories I could relate to whatsoever. I was writing about billion dollar homes and I was going to fashion shows and writing about clothes that were worth tens of thousands of dollars. Couldn't relate to any of it, but like I knew I couldn't let that show, right? It couldn't come across mm. in this high upscale magazine that like, oh, this person doesn't know what they're talking about. Yeah. Like I had to make it sound like I was just, I had to find the narrative that made me enthralled with what I was writing about. And then through doing that, I was able to I guess, share that experience with other people. And then I realized like going into marketing that that's a lot of what marketing was as well. And that storytelling piece and that narrative piece has always been close to my heart. And even now, actually, I've been talking to a lot of people about personal narratives and how huge of a role that plays in your life. Because once you're set on a personal narrative, like that's how every one of your actions every one of your thoughts, that's what everything is born out of, is is this personal narrative. And it's so powerful and we take it for granted. And because we take it for granted, we often don't revisit it and update it as needed. Mm. And it, it takes someone else or something else to kind of make us realize we need to update it. But what if you don't get that message, right? So like just a simple example, I was growing up, I was a really quiet kid, really shy kid. And so well into my 20s, I when people would ask me about myself, I would tell them like, yeah, I'm kind of shy. And towards my mid-20s, if anyone within a 10-mile radius overheard me say this, they'd be like, you're not shy. And I'd be so offended. I'd be like, what are you talking about? How? Who are you? Like, I know myself better. But I realized there was just this spiel that I got so used to giving about myself that I genuinely believed, despite the fact that I'm like, going out and doing speeches and I'm like the loudest looking person in the room, sometimes the loudest sounding person in the room. But I was like, literally being like, I'm shy, don't talk to me. And people were like, um, okay, if you say so. And that's when I realized, oh man, like I built this narrative of me being like shy and an outsider and like all this stuff. It was basically just me describing like my 16 year old self. Like I had just not revisited my personal narrative for like a decade and Hmm. didn't notice until someone was like, you are wrong. (laughs) And rather than get defensive, I like looked into it and was like, Oh yeah, yeah. I'm kind of, I kind of am wrong. (laughs) And yeah. And so that's usually like one of the first things I kind of work through with my clients is what's your personal narrative. Like there's probably some updates you need to make there. Yeah. Most people are unaware that they even have one. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I, I tell people all the time, like, There's this concept that I really work on with my clients. And one of my clients came up with the perfect name for it, which I love. And she called it cognitive confrontations. And it's because I'm always challenging them to confront their limiting beliefs and their and these things that they're saying to themselves 
which is difficult because you don't realize it's happening. It's not like you fully have an audible voice in your head that you're listening to. You know, it, it's not tangible. It's it's just kind of in the ether and it's just kind of part of your consciousness, but it's not fully formed. And oftentimes when it comes to like imposter syndrome or limiting beliefs or just negative self-talk, I tell them like, you probably won't recognize when you're doing it, but you will recognize how it makes you feel after. And Mm. so try to be more conscious of that. And how I challenge them to be more conscious is to take the time to sit in their feelings and talk to themselves. Like I tell them, like, if it's, if it's helpful to you to write out how you're feeling and then from a different perspective, write a response to that, do that if that helps you. Because a lot of people, you know, the hardest person it is for them to have empathy for is themselves. So if you have to put yourself in a space where you're vulnerable, you write out all your feelings, and now you look at those feelings from the perspective of if this was a loved one that came to you and was feeling this way, what would you say to them? Something like that, or just getting your thoughts out of your head and getting them on paper is another big thing with me and my clients. Because again, you have to confront those thoughts. Otherwise, they're just there and they're affecting you and you're not realizing and and you're not, you kind of have to live in this balance of self-awareness and allowing yourself to feel these things and not letting those thoughts kind of flit in and out of your consciousness and impacting you and really in very real ways without you doing anything about it, right? Yeah. Basically, the first half of my coaching program is entirely focused on inner work for that reason, because those limiting beliefs completely impact how you see things, how you think about things, where you're coming at, your perspective, like it it impacts everything. So until we break those down and like really get to the root of some of those limiting beliefs, it's going to be really hard to move on to the next step. Oh, yeah. There are levels to this. Like when I started kind of examining my feelings and, and what was behind them, well, started with my reactions to things and I'd be like, oh, why am I reacting this way? And then, and then I went deeper and then eventually it became, oh, this is the story behind this. Mm-hmm. And then, so I got the low hanging fruit out of the way, you know, the extreme stuff. And then eventually you get to a point where like, there are these subtle behaviors that people do that are, let's say, self-defeating um, among many examples. And they just fly under the radar. No, nobody really examines them until they get to a level of self-awareness where they can really start to look for that. Yep, absolutely. Either they get to that level or someone calls them out or something pushes it into sharp relief. But yeah, it, it's it's there's so much of that. And I always also challenge clients to really look at where that voice is coming from. Something as simple as asking someone like, what are your values? When they give me their answers, I often ask them to think about where do those answers come from? Because it's just, again, is it another thing where it's kind of like your personal narrative where it's like you have this spiel of what your top three core values are that you've had for decades and you've never really examined it. And those values were handed down to you from your parents because they told you these are good values to have. Are they really what you value in life? Are they really Are they really like your North Star in terms of how you interact with people, in terms of the impact you want to have on the world, on yourself, in terms of how you view yourself or other people? Like really think about those things. Don't just regurgitate like, you know, social justice and this and that. And like, there's no connection there. Right. And I find with my clients, like once they figure out their core values and what they actually mean to them and then start thinking about how to align them with their 
day to day, then the conversation starts to become around living in your purpose. But like before all that, just saying that to someone sounds daunting. They're like, what? You might as well be asking me what the meaning of life is. Like, what do you mean? Like, I don't know what my purpose is. My purpose is to make money. I don't know. Take care of my kids. Yeah. Not be a bad guy. I don't know. And it's like, no, like really think about what you want to put out into the world and and try to put a name to that. What are your values? And how do you want them to come up in your day-to-day, whether it's how you interact at work, at home, with your family, with your loved ones, whatever it may be, right? Mm -hmm. So that's like another huge one that another one of those cognitive confrontations that I often try to coach people through because yeah, just so much of what we tell ourselves are just reruns. And it's just kind of like get comfortable with rewriting your story. It's your story. Like Mm. I've had people tell me like, I feel like crap because I don't know what I want to do in the next five years. And I'm like, okay, who's asking you to know that? And their eyes go big and they're like, "Uh, I mean, isn't that a thing that you should know? And I'm like, who cares? Who's asking you? Do you need to know that? Like, is that going to affect your life because you don't know that? Or do you just feel bad because you feel like you should know that? And they're like, yeah, I guess it doesn't matter. I guess as long as I'm happy, that's all I care about. I'm like, okay, great. That's your goal. Be happy in five years. And they're just like, I'm allowed to do that. I'm like, girl, no one is going to beat your ass. Like you're allowed, (laughs) you're allowed to, you know, it's your life. But yeah, it's just, we have these voices and these influences that come from everywhere, whether it's from our parents or society or just a lot. Right. And that's why a lot of my, like my clients, I focus on women and, and femmes because we also have like a specific set of codes that were socialized into learning. And I just want to help as many people as I can, like break down those codes. Right. And, and part of coaching, as you know, is really relating. And so I can relate to them because I've broken out of those same codes. So it's kind of like a safe space. Yeah. And, and yeah, but it's just amazing how many things people think about themselves or about the world that they take for granted. And when you ask them, like, why do you think that they're like, I don't know, <laughs> but it's, it's like free yourself, unburden yourself with this full responsibility of knowing exactly where you're going to be in five years. Take that weight off your shoulders. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I haven't been asked that question in a while, but every time I do, it's always some bullshit answer. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, I usually give a bullshit answer too, because that's not something that's important to me. Like, so, and usually when it's asked, it's like in an interview. So I'm like, I see how that's important to you. So I will have an answer, but for me, like it's less granular than that. It's more about how I want to feel, the impact I want to have. Like it's less about a role and a title and a place and things like that. In five years, I want to have tangible proof of like the impact that I've had on individual people and in, on the world at large. And I want to feel good about myself and how I'm living my life through and through. And I want to have very little limiting beliefs and the ones I do have, I'm actively working on, you know, dispelling them. Like it's, it's more things like that, that don't sound good in a job interview, you know, but (laughs) yeah, it's always in the context of a job interview. It's like, yeah. Who has ever told someone in a job interview? Oh, in five years, I want to have moved on from this role because this is a stepping stone. (laughs) Exactly. It's so, but it's so funny that that question is so ubiquitous that people have internalized it for their personal lives as well. Yeah. It's like, you don't, you don't have to do that if you don't want to. 
Absolutely. And so over the years, you've done marketing, fashion writing, content marketing. So you've accumulated a lot of different skills, yeah. almost like what I like to call a multi-potentialite. So you, you, you're into one thing and then you're into this other thing. And there's a problem that comes up for multi-potentialites. And that is like, I feel like I'm starting over when I do a new thing. And you wrote this really cool article. What was the phrase? It was uh, on starting fresh versus starting over. Yeah. And that was a really cool reframing. Yeah, absolutely. Because, yeah, like, and it's funny. I think I mentioned in the article too, like when I look back on my life now, it doesn't feel like I don't connect to that idea of like, multi-potentialism or like I did one thing and then did another, like it, it, it just doesn't feel that disparate for me mm. because there was always a kind of thread throughout everything I did. And at the most holistic level, that thread was, I want to help people. So whether that's through customer service, through fashion, which I was like really passionate about at one point, through marketing, through like helping small businesses, through coaching, like that's always been a thing that I've stood firm on. And so in that sense, now when I look back, those were all just different iterations or kind of pivots, but it doesn't feel or it doesn't seem to me in retrospect as stilted as it probably felt in the moment. Definitely in the moment, it was like a huge context switch to go from telemarketing to fashion to then tech. But like now with this new mind and this new kind of perspective that I have, it's really hard for me to view it as these weird, random, unrelated things that I've done. Like it just all flows together for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, connecting them all into uh, something cohesive. And, and then you, I remember you called it life's transferable skills. Yeah, because again, that was how I both the reframing of my past, but also, yeah, picking up all those skills. Those were two things that I knew as a storyteller, I needed to get across in interviews. And the more that I was telling the story, which at first just came out of a place of necessity of like, I need to figure out what, what to say so that I can have money to pay the bills. Over time, I was like, no, this isn't BS. Like, this is actually real and true. Like, for every job, I, I would be like, you know, I might not have specific experience in this specific sector or this specific type of role, but here are all the past jobs I did where I exemplified the skills that you need. So all you have to do is give me a chance. I know I'm not going to fail. So you just have to, you know, give me a chance. And But it was true every time, right? Like I never kind of got into a situation where I was like, out of my depth because I really did believe like everything I had done up until that point I could use for that moment. And if nothing else, Google is free. So, <laughs> you know, like, yeah, I, and that's what I try to really tell, especially like people who are just starting out their careers. They definitely, I find people at the start of their careers and people who've had long careers, there's like this Venn diagram where there's like this clock ticking and they feel like they can't waste time. They can't waste time. Or like, yeah, everything is really time focused. So they're either like, I have to stay at this job for a specific amount of time so that I could gain these skills. Or I have to figure out what I want to do so that I could be on that path as soon as possible and not waste any time. And I'm just like, but who says you're wasting time if you're gaining all of these skills? And even better, if you're gaining 
a range, a variety of skills, because that means you can't be pigeonholed and you have a different perspective and you can problem solve more creatively and probably more effectively. Like, how is that a waste of your time? And just this concept of of time wasted that a lot of people have on the other end of the spectrum, people with long careers, they don't want to waste time, you know, starting over or or anything like that. And it's like, if you're finally doing something you love, how can that be a waste of time? Or if you need to take a break to take care of yourself, how can that be a waste of time? And it just goes back to what we're socialized to believe, right? That our value and our worth and our time is completely ruled by productivity and productivity Mm. is all about how much can you provide for other people as efficiently as possible. And it's like, you can't pour from an empty cup. So if you are pouring into yourself so that you can be better energized to do what you need to do or what you want to do, that is a very productive use of your time. Whether that looks like a nap or your hobbies or whatever it may be, those are all productive uses of your time. Like that's your time and you're pouring into yourself that that will always be good. And so, yeah, it's just a lot of reframing that needs to happen in a lot of different areas. But I find once you kind of reframe in one place, it becomes easier and easier to kind of figure out all that other stuff. It just all comes together, right? Yeah. That stuff is so interconnected, right? Yeah, it's just kind of about lifting that veil and seeing life, your life specifically, for what it really is and what it can be, as opposed to what it can be for someone else. Yeah, yeah. And the underlying assumption there is that productivity is a means to more productivity. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Whereas it can just be, you know, could just be what it is, you know, that thing you're doing. Yeah, exactly. So shifting gears a little bit into the coaching realm, what was the impetus for ICU sis? Yeah, I had a really tough, I mean, everyone had a really tough 2020. I was struggling even before the pandemic hit, but I was in denial because I had hit that wall several times before my career. And so I just started getting used to it. I just sort of resigned myself to this is what it's like living in a capitalist society is you're going to do a job. You're going to like it at first, then you're going to hate it. And you're either going to deal with it or find something else. And for me, there's that extra layer of being black where it was like, you're going to find a job, you're going to love it. Then you're either going to hate the job or realize the company is deeply racist. You're going to try everything you can to help fix that, realize it's too big of a problem for you to solve, eventually get so burnt out emotionally and physically that you have to leave and then just do the whole fun thing all over again. Yay. (laughs) And so I was reaching that point in my latest job and then the pandemic hit. And, but the silver lining to that was there were no more distractions anymore. There was no more working myself to death. There was no more just getting drunk every evening and on the weekends with my friends to forget about work. There was no more of that because for the first time I had to sit the heck down somewhere and just be stuck with my thoughts. That's when I really started to feel like this weird shift where I was like, everything is fake. Like it it just felt like Mm. that in the matrix where I was like, everything is a sham. Like, and I think seeing how the government and corporations were treating people during the pandemic and 
seeing that, you know, profits were really coming before public health and bailout money was available for certain people and not others. I was like, oh, this is all fake. Like you're all just like writing the rules as you go along to make it work for you. So why am I playing into this? This is dumb. So then I just really started thinking of like, how can I start living for me? How can I, I felt like my whole life, my power had been kind of stripped away in many ways. I took it back in some senses with my writing. I took it back when I was doing public speaking, but whatever energy I had and whatever power I had and whatever influence I had, it was always in service of a company and someone else and never in service of myself. And I wanted to choose myself for the first time in my life. So I started feeling like that. And then I just kind of out of the blue came up with an idea to start this Instagram page just to kind of let other people know I was feeling the same way and like, let's all feel this way together. My life motto and like the impetus for a lot of my decisions is be the person you wish you had when you were struggling the most. Mm. Immediately, once COVID hit and I was really struggling, I was like, other people are probably struggling. And one way that helps me get out of my head is by helping other people. I try to find a balance of that where I'm not using it as a crutch or as an excuse to kind of ignore my own problems. But it does really help me kind of get perspective and learn and share my learnings, right? And so I started the IG page for that at first, just to kind of share little nuggets of my life and what I learned. And it was really just going to be that, just like stories of my life and lessons that I learned and let me know if this resonates. And then I still to this day don't know how I came upon coaching. I just remember thinking, oh, this sounds a lot like what I already do in my day to day naturally. So yeah, I guess I'll take a course. Mm. Work will pay for it. So why not? Like, let me try this thing out. And I was like, and it'll probably, you know, help me in work in that it'll help me, you know, find a different way to connect with people because my role whether officially or unofficially, I, I've always been kind of put into this project manager role. So that takes a lot of, you know, collaboration, but it takes a lot of empathy as well, right? People don't want someone who's technically not their boss barking orders at them, especially if they don't feel like you know anything about their daily life and what they're going through, right? So I thought if nothing else, like the coaching course would really help me with that. And just the more as the weeks went on, the more in love I fell with it. And then that and the combination of my of running my Instagram page, I started feeling this feeling I'd never had before of like, I can make this into a thing. And up until that point, if anyone had asked me, I would always tell them I am not an entrepreneur, I will gladly work for someone for the rest of my life. Like, I don't even know how I would begin to run my own business. But I realized it's either I, I have to choose myself at this point, because I'm never going to be happy in the system that I'm in right now. The playing field isn't level. The glass ceiling, there's like different levels of glass ceilings, which they don't tell you about. You think it's one glass ceiling for all women, for all whatever. And it's like, no, there's like a glass ceiling for women, glass ceiling for black women, glass ceiling for black queer women. But like, it's just black ceiling for black queer women under the age of 30. Like, there's just so much. I'm like, I'm not doing all of this. Like, what am I? Construction worker? I'm not doing any of this. So I was just like, I need to figure it out. And you know what? No matter how hard it is, at least 
the end result will be for me, like something that makes me happy. Why am I killing myself for someone else's dream, right? And so I just kind of decided like, okay, maybe this is something I want to do. And even then, like, while I was having all these thoughts, I still didn't think that I would be sitting here today a full-time coach. I thought I was setting the foundation for something that would come to fruition like years from now, right? Mm -hmm. And so I finished the course and then someone I knew and met through the speaker bootcamp, that bootcamp essentially gave her the confidence to now she's an amazing coach of coaches and, you know, living her best life, like, you know, making well above six figures, like just living her best life. And and it's just like crazy having met her in that, in that coaching program where she was so shy and like barely spoke to, you know, paint, like investing four figures in her to help me get a coaching business off the ground. And again, I didn't really know what I was doing. I signed up for an accelerator, not knowing what an accelerator was, and then very quickly learned in like the first week, oh, it's an accelerator because it's accelerating some shit. Like, oh, (laughs) so I was like, okay, guess I have a business now. Damn. Like, (laughs) I kind of had to go with it. And it just felt like a a wave that I just kind of went on and, and rode. But honestly, all of the major pivots in my life, that's how I went about it. I kind of put myself in a corner where I have to succeed. Failure is not an option in that it's not an option financially. It's not an option like for me to not have a place to live. Like I don't have a big family. I have no family in Toronto. So I've always kind of, I've always put myself in those situations purposely. So even moving to Toronto, I moved to Toronto practically on a whim, just told my mom, Hey, I'm out. And she's like, all right, girl. And I asked a friend if I could stay with them. And then I just made it work. And so that's kind of, where I found myself in the winter of last year. And I was like, okay, well, I'll just ride this out and see what happens. And then it just worked out that, you know, things still weren't going well with work and we just decided to to part ways. And so I was like, well, I invested all this time into coaching. Might as well make this a real thing. I already have an Instagram. I already have websites on deck that I can just redesign And so just all the pieces just started falling together, but it really felt like that sense of flow. Like when you lose sense of time and you feel like you're, you're living in your purpose, like pretty much since September, since I came upon that coaching class, no, even before that, since I started the ICU sys Instagram, that's how I've been feeling. Where like, I've just been like riding it out and things have been falling into place. And I really believe it's because like, I finally hit my purpose and I believe that I had to kind of go through all the experiences I did, A, so that I can relate to my clients more and B, so that I could pick up all those transferable skills. And now I'm using my marketing skills for my business and I'm using my the, all the life lessons I've had for my clients. And I've spoken to clients and prospective clients that are from all walks of life. And no matter how old they are or what career path they're on or whatever, I could relate to them on a deep level because at some point in my life, because I've lived so many different lives, I've gone through exactly what they're going through. And I just find that so beautiful of just like connecting through the human experience and connecting through, you know, stories that we can all relate to and things like that. Like it just, Mm. it's a completely different thing. It's coaching, but in my mind, it's still just another mode of storytelling in a way. It's just two people connecting through their stories and me as a coach working to help you kind of, you know, revise your personal story, your personal narrative so that you can go on and create the next chapter 
in a way that really speaks to you, that's really meaningful to you. It's all like, you know, the book, the storytelling metaphors are all there. It's just my whole jam. So yeah, that's (laughs) awesome. It's so powerful when you put yourself in the right situation, in the right environment, and then you just take off. Yeah, exactly. And I just kind of, I was afraid, but I was like, what else am I going to do? We're all stuck at home. So I'm going to take that course. I'm going to try this accelerator. I'm going to start this Instagram. I'm going to make it into a real business. I'm going to start asking for clients. Oh my God, I have clients. I'm going to start coaching clients. Oh my God, I'm doing it. And now I'm like, oh my God, I'm running a business. This is so weird. So (laughs) I just kind of just go along for the ride and I'm loving it. That's super honest. Yeah, I love that. I love that. Uh, A big theme in your coaching is emotional clarity. Yeah. What does that look like? Yeah. So emotional clarity for me is kind of doing the work to parse through that emotional turmoil, right? And emotional turmoil that could come in the form of limiting beliefs, anxiety, imposter syndrome, negative self-talk, but just things that people tend to do on a daily basis that hold them back from what their life could really be. And so that's why I said, like, I start out the first couple of weeks of my program working on doing the inner work with them to kind of get all that gunk out. Like really the whole point is just getting out of your head and getting it out there and being confronted with it and deciding what is it going to be? Does it, what does this mean to you? Does it still have meaning to you? Is it just something you've been carrying because it's comfortable? Like go like asking yourself all of those questions because I find by the end, once you have a clearer sense of self, you have a clearer sense of your values, you have a clearer sense of your purpose, you have a clearer sense of what you want to do, who you want to be, what you want to look like, what impact you want to have, then the decision making comes so much easier than that, mm. that action plan piece. So the way that I kind of structure my course is it starts with the inner work, then you go into like goal setting, and then you set milestones and then you build, you know, systems for accountability. And then you have an action plan. By the end, you have an action plan towards exactly what you set out to do so that you can go on and do that without the baggage that you came in with, right? The baggage of, I can't do this because X, Y. I shouldn't do this because X, Y. I'm expected to do this, like, without all that baggage. So for me, emotional clarity is just kind of removing that baggage because that baggage is blinding. For a lot of people, it's paralyzing for a lot of people because it's internal. Sometimes you do need, you know, that mirror or someone to kind of reflect that back onto you. Even the most self-aware people, right? Like have blind spots. So mm-hmm. for me, my job as a coach is to kind of shed light on the blind spots and help you do the work even though it's uncomfortable, kind of nurture you through that process of gaining emotional clarity. It's deeply personal, but it definitely helps to have someone there nurturing you and telling you it's okay and telling you that that discomfort is normal and to be expected and to give your, reminding you to give yourself grace. Like that's kind of my role in the first few weeks, right? Like I kind of give them the building blocks and they're off on their own journey, but I'm there to make sure they're okay, to make sure they're not veering off track to make sure they're not going at it from like a a scarcity mindset or a fear mindset. I'm just kind of literally a coach for the first few weeks. And then after that, we build more of a partnership because we've gone through all that hard gunk together. Now we can partner together to build like an action plan. That's where like my project management sense comes in. 
to build that action plan of like, all right, now you've gotten rid of all that shit. What do you want to do now? Let's figure out how to get you there and figure out how to get you there in a way that you feel good about, not just me telling you what to do or you saying you're going to do X, Y, Z because that's what it sounds like you have to do or it's the right thing to do or whatever. Like, no, how can you do it in a way that makes you feel good? Mm. And that's kind of the second half of the program. Okay. And that's uh, six weeks long, is it? Yes. It's probably going to become eight weeks um, because there's a couple of weeks where I think people need more time. Mm. But yeah, six to eight weeks, one-on-one clarity sessions once a week, workbooks, and just, you know, a lot of dialogue, a lot of just working together with them. I, I definitely try to have boundaries because I know for myself, I tend to, like, if I want to help someone, I give my all. I do want to do that for my coaches, you know, and I just feel like as long as I can kind of balance other tasks that I have to do, then it gives me a lot more leeway to work with them in depth in a way that I want to work with them, right? Without having to kind of push them away and be like, no, you have to do this yourself. Like, because I know firsthand, like how difficult it is to do that stuff firsthand too, right? So yeah, yeah. One of the things we always run into as, you know, people who help others is there are two aspects to, you know, the problems that you know, our clients are facing. In my case, it's mostly uh, new immigrants. Um, in your case, women of color, non-binary individuals. Yeah. There's these two aspects. One is the systemic aspect, yeah. which it's hard to do anything about as an individual without collective action over time. You know, it's very painstaking work. Yeah. And then, so that seems to be, you know, what, in most people's estimation, like the majority of the problem. And then there's this aspect of, you know, things that are in your control. Is it worth focusing on that? I know, you know, our very careers are (laughs) about focusing on that, but is it, is it transformative just to focus on that? And how far can someone go with their own individual actions to change their life? Yeah, I think you can go very far. I think the, the key perspective that I try to give to my clients in terms of the systemic stuff is like, yes, you have no control over it, but you also don't have to internalize it. And I get them to unpackage how much of the systemic stuff that they've internalized, that they blame themselves for, that they've burdened themselves with. And so together we work on removing that burden so that they can more fully focus on their individual actions and what they can do. Because again, like that internalizing that stuff is crippling, right? Like if you think your life looks a certain way and it's entirely your fault, there, there's, a, there's a helplessness that comes with that. And so mm-hmm. it's making them realize they're not helpless. They're working in a system that's not built entirely for them and through no fault of their own. And with that knowledge comes power, I find. And once they're able to recognize that and able to separate that, right? When they when they come up against those issues, they're able to be like, this isn't on me and mm-hmm. move on. And it's just, it's just like a better, they're able to recover better. They're able to move on. They're able to move through. They're able to see clearly through to the other side, as opposed to getting stuck on this one thing that has nothing to do with them and isn't about them and isn't their fault. And just like 
you know, self-flagellating. And mm-hmm. so for the systemic stuff, that's the first, the, that's the wall that I want to knock down. And then for the personal stuff, it just becomes a lot easier. And then it, it's more about building those habits. So I talk a lot about breaking negative mental habits. And so, yeah, it's just recognizing that this isn't an overnight change. So yes, you know, tangibly what action steps you need to take, but your mind is going to fight you every step of the way because of how you've been socialized. So how can you build better mental habits to recognize when that's happening, confront it, stop it and move on so that again, your personal actions take you even further and have more purpose and have more meaning and are more effective because you're not mired by all the systemic bullshit. Mm-hmm. Amazing. I love that answer. That's a great place to, to end off today. Um, where is the best place people can find you? Yes. The best place is on my coaching website, icusis.co. So I S E E y-o-u-s-i-s.co. There you'll find my Instagram, which is where you can follow me. And, or you can just visit my personal website. It has all of my past gigs and a link to my coaching website. And that's just my name, dianacadet.com, D-A-Y-A-N-A-C-A-D-E-T. Those are the two best places to find me. From those places, you'll find my social media. So yeah. Awesome. Diana Cadet, I see you dot sis on Instagram. Websites will be linked. I'll put those in the show notes and everything. Yay. Awesome. Thanks for listening. Visit excellentquestions.fm to listen to more episodes or subscribe on your favorite podcast app. I'll see you next month.